We are in a series, a summer series that we are calling Heroes from Hebrews. And we kicked it off a couple weeks ago. I talked a little bit about what faith is, the substance of faith, the evidence of faith, test of, of faith, uh, the object of our faith, and uh, the evidence and, and reward of our faith. And then last week, Pastor Tim did a great job looking at our first characters of Abel and Cain and showing us why Abel's faith was far greater than Cain's. And so we come this morning into this next story in Hebrews chapter 11. You go ahead and turn there, Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 5 and 6 this morning. Just two verses that pack a whole lot in them, and I think you're going to discover some insights today like me uh, that, are, that are pretty super helpful. So we pick things up in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 11 as we're introduced to this character by the name of Enoch. Follow along, verses 5 and six, by faith Enoch was taken up that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What just happened here? Did you read that? Did you catch that? Enoch was taken up to be with God. He was no more. We read through that verse, and if you're like me, I've heard that. I don't know a lot about Enoch. Uh, maybe you don't either today. But I read that today, and I just kind of glide past that and go, yeah, I was taken up to heaven. That sounds like it was taken out of a superhero comic story this morning. He was no more. He was walking one day, and then poof, he was gone. I think there's a movie called Thor that actually happens. A guy just disappears and goes to another place. This is nuts. And I want to start this morning by us just taking a moment to appreciate some of the things that happen in God's word that are literally unbelievable. Enoch dodged death. He avoided death. He's one of two people that we see recorded in scripture that actually avoided and dodged and death. And yet as incredible as that is, and it is incredible, and we need to take a moment and be able to just let that sit in, that God actually spared someone from death. As incredible as, as that is, that's not where I want to go today. We'll touch on that a little bit at the end. But what's much more amazing and where we want to focus our time today is on, on Enoch's faith. There was something about his faith that brought such pleasure to God, that was so pleasing to God, that for in this instance, God took him straight up to be with him. But I want to focus on what made his faith pleasing to God. Because if you're here today and you have a relationship with the Lord, I would imagine that there is a huge part of your heart that desires to please God, or it should. I think anyone who understands who God is, the majesty of him, the glory of him, the sovereignty, the greatness of God, if they truly understood that in the depths of their soul, as some of us do, then the greatest of their desire would be to please God. But what does it look like to please God, and how can we learn that from Enoch's life today. Join me as we pray and ask God to reveal that to us today. Heavenly Father, I have been so challenged and encouraged this week as I've studied the life of Enoch. There's not a lot there, but, but what's there is pretty significant. And I pray as we unpack that today and we seek to answer this question, what brings pleasure to you? What about our faith and Enoch's faith pleases you? I pray that you would allow us to have ears to hear, hearts that are receptive, to your truth, and then as always, as we are confronted with the truth of your word, that we do not walk away unchanged, but rather we walk out of here different because of the power of your word and the gospel at work in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
Now, like Abel, we don't have a lot of information about Enoch. Uh, there's little that is, that is contributed by Moses. Moses is the one who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch. And so we looked at chapter 4 in Genesis last week. We're going to look at chapter 5 here in just a minute to learn a little bit more about the life of Enoch. But we, we don't know about, much about him. It struck me this week as I was thinking, when was the last time you ran into somebody named Enoch? Right? We run into Abraham's and Noah's, Paul's and David's, all these great men and women of the Bible that we name our children after, including even Jonah, who ran from God, right? Tried to ditch him and, you know, didn't want anything to do with it. And yet Enoch is not a name you hear. And yet Enoch is one of two men that went to be with God and avoided and dodged death. In fact, he's the only one in Hebrews 11 that we see that avoids earthly Death. I'm not saying we need to have a revolution and name all of our children Enoch, although part of me wished I could go back and maybe make Enoch a middle name of one of my sons, but it, it, it did strike me that there's something here. And while Moses doesn't give us a lot of information, he gives us everything we need to know, and he gives us what he wants us to focus on. Not everything we could know that there is to know about how Enoch lived in his days as he walked that may have caused him to go and to be with God, but rather the big idea of what about his life and his walk with, with God was so pleasing to God and is a model for us today. So turn to Genesis chapter 5. We're going to look at a few verses there to get a little more context because there's only three places in Scripture that Enoch is mentioned. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, 5 and 6. We see what we just read. We're going to read a little bit about him in Genesis chapter 5. And then we'll see in a moment that he's referred to and he's used as, uh, as an illustration, as an example in Jude. Probably not a book that you've spent a lot of time in. The second to last book in the New Testament right before Revelation. And we'll learn a few things. Now, as we look at what we see in Genesis, let me just set this up for a moment. Genesis chapter 5 is 32 verses. In 32 verses... Moses covers 1,500 years of history, all right? There is a whole lot going on. And I'm going to summarize it for you real quick before I read the verses I want to focus on. There were some men who lived a really long time. They had a lot of kids and they died, all right? 1,500 years of that. In fact, I was thinking about this this week and I thought, that's kind of going to sum up my life. There was a guy that lived, hopefully a lot of years, had a bunch of kids and he died, all right? So, you know, they made it in there and that's about all we know about some of these characters, including Adam lived 930 years, he fathered a bunch of kids, and he died. Seth lived 912 years, he, lived a bunch of, he fathered a bunch of kids, and he died. Enosh lived 905 years, fathered kids, and died. Kenan, 910 years. Mahalalel lived 895. Poor guy, couldn't quite get to 900. He was close, just couldn't quite get over, right? And then we come to Jared. Jared lived 962 years, he fathered kids, and he died. And here's where the narrative changes. We kind of go and bump, 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 bump. All right, we're seeing it. We don't really know what those guys were doing. I mean, seriously, how do you fill 900 years worth of life? What does that look like? Fascinating when I get to heaven to learn some of the details of what that, of what those particulars were. But join with me in, in turning to Genesis 5 if you're not already there. And let's look at what Moses says, starting in, in verse 18. I mentioned uh, Jared. Let's pick it up right there. So, verse 18, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God 
took him. Again, I, I just want to stop and go, what? Like, what just happened here? So you have guys living to be about 900-ish years old, and then all of a sudden there's this guy, seventh from Adam, born about 600 years after Adam, who has a son named Methuselah, and most of you probably know Methuselah lived to be the oldest man that ever lived, 969 years old. Enoch happened to be the great-grandfather of Noah. Methuselah was his grandfather, and Methuselah actually dies the year of the flood. Now, I'm not going to get into all those details because we're going to hit some of that off as we talk about Noah in the, in the weeks to come and, and other heroes as well, but to just set some of the context for who he was. So it's like this, you know, it'd be somebody who's about 30, maybe late 20s, 30 years old, when everybody else is living to be like 85, 90 years old, and all of a sudden is taken. I mean, that's just a perspective, right? About 40% of life lived in comparison to everybody else. And so what was it about Enoch that was different than everyone who had come before him and everyone who's going to go past him? And that's what I want us to look at briefly today. Part of this is, and we'll hit this off in point number two today, but part of this is that everyone else at that time was living very unrighteously in general. And there were a few exceptions to it. Enoch was one. And so that's why we want to focus on him today. It's why the author of Hebrews takes time to be able to focus on Enoch and highlight him in that Heroes of Faith section. is because something was different, and we want to pay attention to that. What was so different about Enoch from everyone else? Everyone else who was living unrighteously so much that in chapter 6 of Genesis, Moses tells us that God came to regret that he had made men and he's ready to wipe them all out. And in fact, he does all but Noah. He found one righteous man, spares his family. So we're talking about a level of degradation uh, that's hard to comprehend. We think the world is bad right now. I think there's a lot of sin and debauchery and nasty stuff going on. There is. But I'm not sure it even can hold a candle to some of the stuff that was happening back then, how widespread it was in such a level that God is regretting 1,500 years later that he's made man. And is it possible for us to please God in a similar way to Enoch? That's what we want to look at. Two points today. I'm going to keep it kind of simple and hopefully keep moving. I'm going to give you both points right away. Pleasing God, having faith that pleases God involves two things from Enoch. I'm not saying this is all there is to pleasing God, boiled down in two little statements. I'm saying from the life of Enoch, from what we have from God's word, I see two things that I think we can apply to our lives today. First, Enoch walked with God. Secondly, Enoch warned others of God's judgment. Now, the first one is much more enjoyable to talk about. I'll be honest, as we get to the point number two, maybe I'll run out of time and just have to skip past it, right? It's much more uncomfortable. It's been uncomfortable for me to evaluate this in my own life this week, and I'll try to be transparent in that. And I think it's difficult for all of us as we wrestle with what does that second point look like? Because we'd rather talk about what does it look like to walk with God. I like that. That gives me, you know, a little bit of kind of warm fuzzies, and I want to be close with God, and it's more than warm fuzzies for sure, but it's a lot easier to focus and talk about that today. But it's important that we understand what it means to walk with God as we glean from Enoch's life. So the first point is, pleasing God involves walking with God. God has wanted a walking partner from the beginning, from his time in the garden with Adam and Eve. He created man for the enjoyment of a walking relationship that involved companionship, dialogue, intimacy, joint decision-making, mutual delight, and shared dominion. 
That's how it was meant to be in the garden. A oneness with God, a relationship where they walk together in the cool of the morning. And God still longs to walk with each one of us. And it's why his arms of grace are spread out and open, trying to pull us, each one of us, wherever you are today on your journey with, with, with God and with Jesus, pulling us into a closer relationship and a desire to walk with you today. Some of you are walking with him today. Some of you need to be here today and hear this because God's calling you saying, please come and walk with me. I long to give you my grace and to have a walking relationship with you. Now, this language or analogy of, of walking resonates with me. I love to walk. I'll be honest, part of it is I hate to run. So walking is the, is, is the alternative to me. I love to walk. I built a campground across our street in, in Big Rock a couple years ago. Initially, I was kind of annoyed, but it worked out really well for us. Paved area, beautiful place, backs up to a reservoir. I love to go out early, like sometimes at, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning or 4.30 or afterwards, and just the cool of the morning, the stillness. I have some of my best moments with the Lord, times to think. In fact, early this morning, I was out walking, just thinking and praying about this morning. I also love to walk with my wife and children. Uh, my wife and I, as much as possible, try to get out in the morning and, and make walks in the, in the cool of the morning. It's getting harder as the heat comes, but we like the heat as well. And we talk and we pray and we share and we catch up, which is hard to do with six kids during the day. So you got to get out early and have that time. And I love it because there's this sense of connection and oneness, and it's just a precious time for us. And I think God longs and desires for that in our lives as well. Enoch walked with God. He didn't walk in front of him. He didn't walk behind him. He walked with God. Early in my marriage, I'm kind of a fast walker, and, and, and I still am today, but I would, I would walk ahead of Sarah. I was immature. was the biggest part of it. I'd pride, and I'm, come on, keep up with me, woman, right? You got to go with me, all right? We're going somewhere, and fortunately, the Lord has convicted me of that and realizing that's not helpful. It's not helpful to walk ahead. It's not helpful to walk behind. If you want a relationship, you want to spend time together, we need to walk together in tandem, and that's what we see here illustrated with Enoch. He walked with God, and I see three things of, that, that, that I come out of these passages today that help illustrate this idea of walking with God. First, it means friendship with God. God longs to be in a friendship and a relationship with us, just like I long to be in a relationship and a deep friendship with my wife. Imagine the depths of intimacy that Enoch must have experienced in his 300 years of walking with God. Practically, I don't know what that looked like for him. I don't know what that looked like on a daily basis. I know what that can look like for me, and there were probably some parallels in his life as well that we'll hit off here in just a moment. But there was a sense that he walked with God, he spent time with God, he longed to be with God. I was meeting with a couple, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to officiate their wedding ceremony ne- uh, later this month. And I was just finding out a little bit about them. Hey, tell me about your relationship. What do you enjoy? And right away, they both said, we just love being together. For two and a half years, we've been in a relationship. We're now getting ready to be married. And I can't, they both said, I don't think we spent a day not with each other. And that just really struck me that at its core, right, marriage is about friendship. It's about being friends together. Yes, all the other things that come with marriage are wonderful and delightful, and I'm thankful for them. But at its core, I'm learning in my own relationship with Sarah that it's the friendship that is the, is the foundation with our relationship. We've got to be friends first. We need to enjoy each other. And I don't think it's much different with God. 
God has modeled marriage after his relationship with us, and he desires to be in covenant with us that involves a deep, abiding, healthy, vibrant friendship, and you must spend time together. You must share your hearts. You must be open. Sarah and I can't have a relationship where we keep everything surface level. I've got to open up my heart. I've got to, I've got to risk saying things. I've got to risk being open and saying hard things and receiving them from her as well. There has to be a mutual submission and love and respect towards each other. I believe that Enoch experienced this with God. Enoch was open with God. Enoch was free to share his heart. But he wasn't like buds with God. A couple of years ago, I remember kind of a fad going around. There were t-shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Do you remember that? No, he's not. He's not your homeboy or your bud. You know, we're just hanging out in that sense. No, there is still a sense of awe and reverence and worship because I am connecting with a holy God. He is creator. I am creation. And yet God allows himself to enter into a friendship and a relationship that allows me to have access to him and to be open and free, sharing my heart, my desires with him. It's constantly growing. It's constantly deepening. Secondly, we see in Enoch that he lived a life of faith. Now, it's his faith that was pleasing to God, and that's what we're looking at. What about his faith was pleasing to God? And what sticks out to me especially is that Enoch lived a life of faith. If you're like me, we can kind of focus at times on moments of great faith, either in others or in ourselves. I look at someone and say, wow, in that moment, he evidenced incredible faith, and that carried him through. And that, that may be true. There are those moments, some of those mountaintop experiences where our faith maybe has been tested and God has come through and we just look back on it and go, man, can you believe what God did? And there is such value and health and I'm guessing that Enoch had some of those moments as well. But what strikes me about Enoch is how long did he walk with God? How many years? 300. Three centuries. All right, he had some highs and he had some lows, but you know what he had a lot of? Everyday moments, ordinary Monday moments, squabbles with his wife, not taking care of the kids, frustrations, uh, annoyances. He was a sinner. We only hear the good about Enoch, but we know that Enoch was a sinner because only one man walked the face of the earth, Jesus Christ, that had no sin. We don't know the specifics of his sin like we do many others in scripture, but we know he wasn't perfect. We know he struggled. We know he sinned. I would love to speculate on his sins, but scripture doesn't give it to us. I just know as a father with a handful of kids, I can guess what some of his sins were. And I know what it's like to be married and can imagine some of the sins. And he was living in a very trying, sinful, difficult time. The author of Hebrews in chapter 6, as he's setting up this faith that is pleasing to God, he mentions that whoever draws near to God, that's that friendship part, friendship is drawing near to God, and it says, whoever draws near, near to God will acknowledge that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That part of acknowledging he exists is a part of living a life of faith. It's not denying the existence of God. It's saying, I know God is who he says he is. He's a righteous, holy, faithful, sovereign God. Who he says he is in his word is who he is. His promises are true today. And tomorrow, you can take him to the bank. You can count on them as well. I also believe that Enoch, in this life of faith, these ordinary moments as a parent, as a husband, I believe that he had a sense of purity too. We'll see in a moment of how, 
how destructive this time was and how much people were indulging in such uh, sexual uh, immorality uh, as a primary form, but they were denying the existence of God. And yet Enoch stands in opposition to that, and he is a man who walks with God in a pure way. Our culture needs that today. People that are willing to walk purely in their character, in their integrity, in their sexual purity, in their relational purity as well. You know, Enoch did not remove himself from the world. For 300 years, he was living in the world in the midst of this. So don't see this as, you know what, I bet. The only way that Enoch could have done that is if he had removed himself from the world, right? Who can live in that level of sin? We don't see that there. He had children. He was in relationships. We'll see later. He was warning people. He was proactively involved in the world. This is not a call to separate and pull back. This walking with God and living a life of faith, this is a call to engage with the culture and to be a light in a dark place, but do it in a different way. To be in the world, but not of the world. To live purely and righteously. Enoch walked with God he pleased God without having the, the, the gift that we have today of the Bible. There weren't prophets at that time. And he was doing this in a one-on-one relationship with God. And it does appear that God revealed some things to him to help him in that journey. But he was still doing it on faith. And we see 300 years of a man that walked faithfully with God. Not perfect. Not without struggles. Not without blemishes. Not without some highs and some lows. 300 years of ordinary moments, mundane moments of walking with God. Some of us need to hear that today. As a dad, I need to hear that. Some of you moms need to hear that. And the mundane moments of life. Some of you kids need to hear that in the midst of struggling through high school or middle school or preparing for college or young adults and going, man, it just seems hard. It seems so long. How can I sustain this? And it's our God that gives us the ability to sustain that faith. He gives us faith. He helps us sustain that faith. He becomes the object of our faith. But not only are we to have friendship with God and live a life of faith, last point under walking with God is we are to follow Jesus' teaching and example. We are to be following Jesus. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. So as you think follow, I want you to think fix. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The only way you can have friendship with God, the only way that you can walk in a way that evidences a lifestyle of faith is if you are focused on Jesus. You know, Enoch didn't know Jesus. Point he lived, there was no Messiah. There was a promise of a Messiah, right? He knew that the serpent had bruised the heel of the Messiah, but he also knew that the Messiah would come back and crush the head of the snake. I believe he trusted that a Messiah was coming. He didn't know when, but I believe he had faith that a Messiah was coming to rescue his people. Those of us here today, we don't have just the hope. We know it to be true. We have God's word that convinces us, that shows us that there is a Messiah who has come and his name is Jesus. And he offers grace and forgiveness of sins for all who will put their faith and trust in Jesus alone. And so when we follow Jesus' example and we fix our eyes on him, it's because Jesus has set the course for us. No one had a relationship with God and walked with God like Jesus. Jesus walked in step with him. He has an eternity past, present, and future, but specifically as we see through the New Testament, while Jesus walked on this earth, he walked with the Father. There wasn't a moment except for one where they weren't in step with each other. That one moment was when he took the full brunt 
of our sin and shame on his body and bore the weight of our sins so that we could be in relationship with a holy God. Outside of that, he walked in step with his father. He knew when to pull away and withdraw and spend time with him to be refreshed and rejuvenated. Often for him, it was in the morning. He knew when to say no to things and slow down. He knew when to cry out to his father. He was in such relationship and step with him. Now, the language of walking is all throughout Scripture. As I was studying this, I I hadn't realized even how much that language of walking is throughout both the Old and New Testament. We're encouraged to walk with God, to walk with Jesus. And Jesus encouraged his disciples to be fishers of men, and yet we know from what we see in the New Testament that many, the teaching was too hard. John tells us in John chapter 6, verse 66, that for some the teaching was too difficult and they no longer walked with Jesus. Some of us here today struggle with that. Maybe we have started walking with Jesus and it's, we're finding it hard right now. We're finding ourselves slipping back. Jesus is walking and we're not walking with him. Could be from our own sin, a lack of faith, things that we haven't offered to God and asked for forgiveness and been open and honest with others about, hidden sin in our own hearts that are causing a break in our relationship. I think going back to the analogy of marriage, when Sarah and I are not on the same page because usually of something I've done, right, that has caused a break in that relationship or I'm not being open and honest about things, we're not walking in step with each other and it requires some hard come to Jesus moments, openness and honesty, humility and brokenness. For some of us today, the only way for you to be back in step with Jesus is to humble yourself, to recognize your deep need for him, Maybe that involves some relationships in your life as well. And my heart is that you would follow his teaching and his commands. Walking with Jesus is more than just agreeing with Jesus. It's a lifetime commitment of 100%. And not 100% that you're going to do it right all the time. Uh Uh-uh. This side of eternity, we're going to mess up. We're going to struggle. We're going to need grace. Lots and lots and lots of grace. And I praise God who gives us grace abundantly, Over and over and over again. My life is one that's full of moments and moments of grace. And I'm beginning to realize that the older I get, the more I need it. The more I need Jesus, the more I need the gospel. I didn't just get saved and, all right, I'm good. I need Jesus more today than I ever have. And we do here today, and he offers us that gift of grace. But it does require everything. And it's a challenge. It's hard. It's difficult. It requires some suffering and loss. It may cause you to go without things or to have severed relationships with people who do not want to walk with Jesus. It is costly. That's why Jesus says, anyone who would walk with me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul says that anyone who desires a godly life will be persecuted. If you're here looking for the good life now, your best life now, You're not going to find it in that way. In fact, I just read a quotation from John MacArthur the other day that said, your best life is only now if you're going to hell. That hit me like a ton of bricks. This is your best life if you're going to hell. If you have the hope of the uh, the heroes of Hebrews, this is not your best life. It's not that this is meaningless and that it doesn't matter, but your best life is still to come. And Jesus offers us something far greater, just like those heroes in Hebrews. He offers us a better resurrection, a better country, a better life, and a better future. The opportunity to dodge death. Yeah, maybe not like Enoch in an earthly sense, but to dodge death for those who will put their faith and trust in Jesus alone. Following Jesus means walking according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. It means putting aside the fleshly desires, and there are many of them. 
and asking God in those moments to help fight against those things that want to compete against my affections for Jesus, but rather walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to produce and bear fruit in us of love, joy, peace, and patience, all things that we cannot produce in and of ourselves. We are wholly dependent upon a holy God. Work through Jesus to bear that fruit in us. It means that we have to walk by faith and not by sight. There are things in my life right now that I'm trying to follow Jesus and they're on faith or not because they make sense to me right now. It doesn't make sense. I don't know how it's going to work out and I want to pull back control and put faith in me to figure it out and God is calling me to walk with him and trust him even on the things like the heroes in Hebrews that I can't see right now but I'm trusting in a faithful God. The object of my faith is in him. And he's calling for us today to live as wise, not as unwise. That's the warning today. You can live one of two ways as you follow along and try to walk with God as the wise or the unwise. And I pray that our hearts would desire to be wise from what wisdom we see in God's word. So that's the first point. Second point, a little quicker. All right, walking with God. And I long for my heart and our hearts to walk with God like Enoch, in step with him, not behind, not before, but with him as we have friendship with God, live a life of faith, and we follow Jesus' commands. Turn in your Bibles to Jude. The be- I was going to say Jude chapter, but it's just Jude, right? There's 25 verses in Jude. So turn to Jude. It's right at the end of, your, of, of the Bible, right before Revelation. Because the other part we see about Enoch was not that he just walked with God, but that Enoch warned others of God's judgment. And this one will be a little bit briefer, and this one's a little bit harder to swallow, I think, and at least for me to, to, to make sure that I'm applying to my life as well. If we go back to Genesis 5, we saw that Enoch was 65 years old and he had Methuselah. And then Moses says then he walked 300 years with God. Now, I don't know if that means that for the first 65 years he wasn't walking with God and then something happened when he had Methuselah and then all of a sudden the course of, of his life changed and his lifestyle of faith and his walking with God uh, adjusted. It seems that way, um, but I, I'm just inferring. I don't know for sure. Having a child, if that was his first child, that will certainly change things in your life, right? And give you a desire to walk with God. But I sense that God also shared some things with him or prophesied to him in a way or revealed some things to him that gave him uh, some, some level of zeal and passion to begin warning others about God's judgment. And so what we see in Jude, Jude actually quotes Enoch. We're not exactly sure where that comes from, and I'm not going to spend time to try to explain some of the different schools of thought of where that comes from. Uh, but it is included in, in here. Jude was aware of it. He uses it, and he quotes this prophecy of Enoch in Jude chapter 1, verses, uh, what do I have here, verses 15, uh, is it 14 and 15? Let me read those for you. Jude talking, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. I've got to set this up just a little bit. It's interesting. Jude goes out of his way to say that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. Now, that's important because there were other Enochs that are listed in the Bible. And he wanted to make sure that those first century readers were very clear. This was the Enoch that walked with God and then was no more. This is in direct comparison to a man named Lamech. Lamech was the seventh as well from Cain. And they were two totally different men. We see this back in Genesis chapter 4. 
And Lamech was, was not a man who walked with God. He came in the line of Cain. He was the first polygamist, actually, that we see recorded in Scripture. He had two wives, and he has done some heinous act where he kills someone and has some curse or punishment that is placed on him. And, it, and really what we see in Jude, some, a little bit of context with Jude, is, is Jude's purpose in his letter was twofold. He wanted to expose the false teachers that had infiltrated the Christian community, uh, specifically those who were indulging in, in pretty heinous sexual sin and those who were denying the existence of God. And he wanted to encourage Christians to stand firm in their faith and fight for truth. And Jude thought it was important that believers stand against those who were actively against Jesus Christ and the gospel. And Jude reminds us that there is a time and a place for the aggressive protection of truth from those who seek to tear it down. And his primary example is Enoch. Now, I wish I had more time to develop what's going on in Jude, but what Jude is doing is he's, he's warning and he's, he's speaking pretty direct. Jude would not be a preacher that would, did, would have a successful megachurch today, okay? He's a guy that's out there going, here's how it is, here's how it's done, don't be like this, make sure you're like this, there's a bunch of ungodly people that are going to pun- be punished, be aware. And he uses Enoch as an example. Now, there's interesting, there's both the near and the far context of this. Mentioned again, Enoch had a son, Methuselah, who died the year of the flood. So Enoch was pre-flood. Well, part of this prophecy, I believe, relates to the fact that a flood is coming that's going to wipe out the earth. And only Noah's going to be saved. But I also believe that Jude uses this, because this is post the flood, to say that there is a judgment coming for all people who have ever lived. All godly and ungodly alike. Every person that's in this room, even here today, there's a judgment coming. And he is warning people that this judgment is on its way. Jude picks this up and uses it to illustrate what he has said in the previous 13 verses. He mentions Cain, Balaam, a few other bad examples. And he says, be like Enoch, who warned that a judgment is coming. So Enoch was passionate enough in these last 300 years of his life that he spent time warning people of God's judgment. Now, the primary focus and the context of this passage, I believe, is the ungodly. How many times do you see that ungodly is mentioned in those two verses? Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. Now, when a good Bible student knows a repeating word, we should pay attention to that, right? Four times he's coming out warning the ungodly. We need to warn those who are actively engaged in activities, lifestyles, choices, that are actively against God. Some of that may relate to denying the existence of God. In the context of Genesis chapter 5 and chapter 6, there was extreme, as I've already mentioned, sexual debauchery, just total perversion of what God has created for marriage and life and relationships, total perversion of that, along with an active denying of the existence of God, trying to be God's ourself. And we see that played out with uh, the way that they were in, engaging in relationships. They ultimately try to build this tower to reach up to God, right? There was such sinfulness going on at such a, a, just an awful level that I can't even wrap my mind around. But Enoch was passionate about his relationship with God and who God was, that he was actively warning others of God's judgment, specifically the ungodly. I was thinking about this this week because uh, a few years ago I saw a video. Some of you may have seen it. A guy named Penn Jillette. Penn and Teller, have you heard of them? A duo. There's a picture of, of them on the screen. Penn's the guy that's the, on the left, the bigger guy, the one who talks. Teller's on the right. Maybe some of you saw this video a few years ago. It's not new, but it still strikes me. And I'm not going to show you the video, but I want to read a little bit of what he says in that video to illustrate a point in just a moment. And, and the point is, is that we 
struggle with warning others about God's judgment. If you're like me, maybe you're not. Maybe you get a real you know, charge out of this and love telling everybody that you know, God's going to judge them for their ungodliness. I struggle with it. I want to tell people about God's love, but I struggle a little bit about warning them. And yet the most loving thing I can do is warn them about God's judgment. And so there's this, there's this tension at times that goes on. And so what happens is they, they do a show and a guy comes to the show. He's actually a part of their audience. And he comes up later to him afterwards. They're interacting with him afterwards. And he gives them a, a copy of the New, new, uh, new Testament. And he's written something in it. Now, Penn is a, is a pretty strong atheist, actively against the existence of God and an advocate and proponent against it. But he is so moved by this kind of this boldness of this guy and, and the attitude of this guy that he shoots a video afterwards. It's kind of a distracting video. That's why I'm just going to sh- kind of read it to you. And he says some pretty profound things that I think encourage my heart that we need to be warning as well. Let me have those on the screen. He says, I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them, because it would make it socially awkward, right? And we do, right? We do think, man, it is socially awkward. He goes on to say, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is, is possible and not tell them that? And then he gives this, this illustration or analogy. He says, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you, and this is more important than that. And he finishes by saying this, this guy was a really good guy, polite, honest, sane, he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a Bible. I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. But I'll tell you, he was a very, very good man, and that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, it's okay to have that deep of disagreement. I don't share that because I can say, hey, just heard last week, Penn came to know Christ. I don't know that. I don't. As far as I know, he's still ungodly, actively denying the existence of God. And we have all kinds of other illustrations in our life, those who are actively against life at conception, actively against upholding God's standards for marriage and what sexuality should look like, actively involved in so many other ways that go contrary to God's word. And there's a bit of a fear in us, and I get it, me too, to be able to engage in that and say, you know what, I love you enough that I want to warn you, there's a truck coming and I want to throw you, I want you to be able to dodge death as well. And something about Enoch was so fired up about that that he spent those 300 years, I think, it seems, warning people of God's judgment, specifically those actively against God. And that's, that's been challenging to my heart this week as I've reflected on all the moments that I have quenched the Holy Spirit's promptings and not spoken up. And yet I find that while... With the ungodly, there is some part that I can kind of get going a little bit more when it's somebody who's like really against God, really against the core of what truth is. Sometimes I can rise up, but there's two other ways that I can struggle too. There's two other things that I think that are secondary applications. Primary application, I think, in Jude is warning the ungodly. But two others, one is the unreached as well. Two weeks ago, we mentioned that there's two billion people that haven't heard of, heard of Jesus. Two billion people. What are we doing to be sending and financing and going to reach those? Some of you are. Some of you are actively doing that through water projects and through going and mission trips. Our church has a heart for that. We want to reach those, and we need to be actively involved in that. But that still feels a little distant, let's be honest, right? But here's the one that I think really hits me and hits home. How about the uninterested? Are we warning of God's judgment to the uninterested? Because again, I can kind of I can kind of get fired up when somebody's real a jerk. Let's go, all right? This is what God's word says. I'm going down swinging, but you know where I get real timid? 
those who are uninterested, my neighbors, my family members who don't know Jesus, the people that I'm close with, that I'm, that I'm in relationship with, that really don't want anything to do with it. And over time, I go, you know what? It's not worth it. I've even stopped praying, right? I'm not even trying anymore. And this can be all levels of those that are kind of antagonistic about it in their, in their disinterest or those that are just really nice. I have a friend I do some work with that um, probably one of the nicest guys I know. Probably one of the best people I've ever been around. Fair, integrity, honesty, utmost character, generous. I love being with him and spending time with him. Wife knows the Lord. He has no interest. I spend time with him. I've been on plane rides with him. And there's this, it is so hard to try to engage in those conversations with him. And yet I love him and I want him to be warned of God's judgment. And, and God has impressed upon me this week. I've got to more actively pray of how God can use me to minister and warn I don't know where you are today. Some of you need to be warned today. Some of you need to be bolstered in your faith in this way to be encouraged to warn others. But I do want to say there's still time to change. If you're here today and you're feeling God's conviction and warning today, there's time to change and receive his free gift of salvation today. You do not have to endure his eternal judgment. You can be with him forever. And there is plenty of time for us as of today. We don't know what the future holds, but today for us to be not only just walking with God, but to be actively warning others about us. So there's a challenge to us to be like Enoch, both in how we walk with God and how we engage in the world. Again, this is not a call to be removed from the world. This is a a call to be engaged in the world and to be active. Finally, there's a reward. I don't have this as part of the outline, but we see the reward of Enoch. It says in chapter, or chapter 11, verse 6, that, that those who have real faith that pleases God also understand that God rewards those who seek. Don't miss that today. God loves to reward those who follow him. He's not a God that's saying, hey, do all this hard stuff, and it's going to be really hard, and, and then that's it. No, he offers us his approval, his pleasure, and eternity with him. For Enoch, it says that he went to be with God. I still, I say, I still can't get over this. He went to be with God. One day he's walking, and in the next moment he went to be with God. It's just amazing. No funerals, no funeral, no goodbye. His wife and kids, hey, anybody seen Enoch today? Anybody know where dad is? I don't know. He's walking in the field. Well, go see if he passed out out there because nobody can find his body, right? And then over time, because it says that he was commended for his faith before he was taken, they go out and they can't find him. So like, I, 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 think, I think God might have taken him, right? And I don't know how that all came to be, but like, he's not there anymore. He went to be with God. But they would have known the kind of life he lived, right? It wouldn't have been a shocker because Enoch walked with God. I officiate funerals on a fairly regular basis, and many times I do them for unbelievers. But oftentimes in a funeral, I'll just ask, like, hey, throw out a word or a phrase that would describe the person that that we're celebrating. Um, Sometimes it's a hard celebration when they don't know Jesus. But what would you say? I've never heard anyone say they walked with God. Their faith brought pleasure to God. That might be true for some, but wouldn't that be wonderful to be known as a man or woman who walked with God? And that's my heart. That's what I want on my tombstone. John walked with God. He walked with God, and part of that walking with God was being willing to warn others about God. You know, most of us, all of us, it's unlikely that we're going to dodge death on an earthly standpoint. Again, Enoch and Elijah are the only two who did. It's unlikely we're going to dodge death, but all of us have the opportunity, the hope, and the opportunity, like the heroes in Hebrews, to be able to dodge death eternally and to be with God forever. And that is far greater than dodging an earthly death, but to have a better resurrection, a better hope, like Jesus, who conquered the grave, is coming back. We will be with him forever. 
If we're walking with God and we're warning others of him, we have the opportunity to be with him forever. As I close today, I mentioned that I love walking. And two weeks ago when I shared, I, I mentioned a little story about my, my daughter Scarlett. I'm actually going to share another story about her. I, I promise that not every time I preach, I'll talk about Scarlett. But God's doing some fun things in her life. And, and uh, I love to walk. And a few weeks ago, she, we read a book on something. And it had something to do with taking walks with dad or being with dad. And so she's like, oh, on Saturdays, let's, let's make it a dadder day and we'll, we'll take a walk in the morning. And so she's been getting up and we'll go out for walks. It's actually having a bit of a negative impact because she's so excited about him. She's waking up too early on Saturday, so we might need to adjust it. But she's really enjoying it. She's having fun. It's something we both look forward to. I, I get to do this with my other kids as well and Sarah, but this particular illustration works, I think, to flesh out what we're talking about here today. Now, she doesn't get up and get all excited because of something I'm going to do for her, something I'm going to give her. She's not getting on the walk to ask me for money. Uh, she doesn't want anything from me. She just wants to be with me. She puts on her rollerblades. We roll around. I mean, it's just, it's awesome. So the other day we were talking, and she's like, you know, I think um, I want to go to college. And I said, well, what do you want to go to college for? I want to be a mom. Well, you don't have to go to college for that. I mean, that's fine if you want to. But you know, I think, how long do you think I have to go to college to be a, be a better mom? That's a long time, really, actually. Like, you know, be that kind of mom. And uh, I said, no, you probably a year. You could go for a year or two or four, you know, whatever it is you want. And you, I said, well, how many kids do you want to have? This is just illustrating the conversation she has. She goes, three. Now, before I tell you why she said three, part of Scarlett's job, uh, one of her chores is she unloads the dishwasher with two other siblings, all right? One dishwasher, three of them, all right? It's not a huge job. One does the top rack, one does the lower rack, one does the silverware. Now, we have a big family. We probably run a dishwasher more than you, but still, it's a minute or two a day, right? Half of them get put on the counter, and I have to put them away myself anyway. She goes, three. She goes, one to unload the top, one to unload the bottom, one to unload the silverware. And I'm just, I'm just cracking up. I'm like, perfect. Makes already thinking about how she's going to put the kids to work, right? My point is, we have moments that we're walking together where we're just together. Friendship, sharing, talking. That's what God wants with us. The depth of that relationship is only going to grow as we spend more time walking together. How's your walk with God? Are you walking with him and are you understanding of what's coming that you're wanting others to walk with him and with you in that process?